And let me pray one more time for us today, okay? It's great to see everybody. Let's pray together one more time. Well, Heavenly Father, uh, today we just simply ask for your grace as we always do. Lord, I just feel so emotional today. I just, the thought of being away from my church for two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is, um, I hate to miss church, Lord, and I hate to be apart from your people, and I hate to be apart from my church, Lord. So I'm grateful that um, you've given, opened up this time for my wife and I to get away, but Lord, I, I love these people dearly, and I pray that you'd be with them, you'd bless them, be with Pastor Chris, I pray you encourage his heart, pray that you would use him to speak your word, that he would preach your word, and that your word would have a prophetic power in our church as I'm gone, that you would accomplish a great many things through your word. And Father, it is in the confidence of your word that we stand today. Father, we are under your word, and we are longing to be taught and to be instructed by your word today, Lord. And Father, we want to see something of the manifestation of your blessing and your power and the work of your spirit as we look at the text together today out of Isaiah. Bless us, Lord, as we consider what it means to live before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were listening very closely there to the reading of God's word, it's almost a sermon in itself, just to hear the word being read. So powerful what we're seeing here out of Isaiah. Isaiah is almost relaying to us something that made me think that there is a reality behind the reality of what we see in our world today. That really, and the title of my sermon today, means that our lives are lived before the throne of God. That's really where all judgment is going to transpire. That's really where all of our deeds are going to be tested. That's where all of our lives are going to be revealed. That's when everything is going to be manifested and the judgment of God will commence. And it is before the throne of God that Isaiah found himself and all of the marvelous things that we saw in this passage were a direct result of his coming into contact with the throne of God and more importantly with the God upon the throne. And so that's what I want to look at today, living before the throne. That's what I want to consider. And as we do that, I want to just say a few preliminary thoughts about the throne of God. What is it? What does it mean to live in the presence of the throne of God? What does it mean to live our lives before God's throne? How does it affect us? How should we think about these things? I could have entitled this sermon, many things, living before the throne of grace, living in light of eternity, living before God, living the God-centered life. Take your pick. But basically, the throne of God first represents both an Old and New Testament, the epicenter of the presence of God. It is where God resides. It is the place of God and of the Lamb. It is where all of the myriad of angels are gathered today, singing, praising, exalting, glorying in the beauty of God. 
The Bible tells us in Isaiah 63, verse 15, also Jeremiah 14, verse 20, 21, that the throne of God is a place of exquisite beauty, that the throne of God is the place where God's visible glory emanates. When we talk about living for the glory of God, the throne of God is the place where you will see the glory of God manifest. Scripture tells us all sorts of things. As I was going over there, as I thought, you could develop virtually an entire biblical theology about the throne of God because it is intermittent throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, of all the places that you find in the Bible speaking about God's throne, 60%, over 60% of the time, it is referring to the throne of God. The throne of God, in other words, is a major theme in the Bible. It's a major motif because of what it is conveying. It is the place of God's eternal royal majesty. Psalm 45, verse 6. I'm going to shoot like a shotgun a ton of scripture at you right now. The place where God's authority is unrivaled by any king or any angelic being. Isaiah 14, verse 13. Heaven is described as God's throne, and the earth is described as his footstool. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Jerusalem is called God's special city, and it is referred to as God's thr- oh, the, the throne of the Lord, Jeremiah 3, 17. God's throne is glorious, Jeremiah 14, 21. And in Je- uh, Jeremiah 14, 21, we are told that it is the throne of His covenant honor, that it is the throne of His covenant faithfulness. So in other words, when you think about God on His throne, you should think covenant faithful God. You should think covenant keeping God. That's what Jeremiah is saying. In Daniel, the Messiah approaches the blazing throne of the ancient of days to receive the promise of what we now know to be his post-resurrection inheritance, where he received a kingdom that will have no end whatsoever. And in Zechariah chapter 6, we are told that the messianic branch, that the branch there is depicted as the king priest of God who rules from a council of peace on the throne so that he unites the office of prophet, priest, and king. That's what Zechariah describes. It's an amazing idea, the throne of God. Secondly, there is also represented in the throne of God a divine dualism of judgment and mercy. Judgment, because in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, all of mankind will be judged at the throne of God. I often tell college students at UNT that as sure as you are walking down the sidewalk of this campus, one day you will be walking up to the throne of God to give an account for the way that you have lived your life. But we know from Hebrews chapter 4 that it is also the place of grace that the throne represents God's mercy. It represents where we go to find help in time of need. So it speaks of God's rescue of His people. And third, I want to simply make a case for the fact that living our lives in light of the throne of God, thinking about the throne of God, knowing that your life is lived in the presence of the throne of God is good for us for many, many, many reasons. 
Let me just give you three quick reasons. Number one, because it keeps a healthy creator-creature distinction, knowing that God is on the throne and that you are not, that God is God and that you are not God. Number two, closely related, the throne represents God's absolute authority and our absolute submission, or at least it beckons to that. And third, the reason why living before the throne of God is good for us is because it gives us a practical picture of man's dependence on a sovereign God. God being all-powerful, all-knowing, an all-powerful king, we being his needy servants, it means that we have to make constant intervals to the throne of God. We are constantly to return to the throne of God. And we talked about that last week in Hebrews, that how we approach the throne of God is through prayer. We commune with God. We speak to God. We beseech God. We fall on our knees as we know that we have access now to this glorious throne of grace. But now, let's back up. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Because I know you're probably thinking in your mind, boy, he's got a lot of text to cover. I don't know how he's going to do it. But let me back up and let's look at this passage by asking three important questions. Number one, who is on the throne? Who is on the throne? This is my way of saying it is essential for someone that lives in light of the throne of God to know who is on the throne of God. So in other words... What is the character of the one who is on the throne? And so, if we take our cue from Isaiah, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6, and let's look at briefly um, verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. He says here, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. What a magnificent vision that Isaiah is given here. It's almost too much to take in. You talk about putting yourself in the shoes of someone. How can we put ourselves in the shoes of Isaiah and what he saw? But we have to try nevertheless. The number one thing that we learn from this is that the throne represents a sovereign God. So we have, to be, we have to begin with the sovereignty of God. You see that? In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. This speaks of God's ability to permeate everything with his sovereign rule, his sovereign reign, and his sovereign authority. What is the sovereignty of God after all? The sovereignty of God means that God does whatever He pleases, whenever He pleases, and He answers to no one. Sadly, in our culture today, we've humanized God to the point where God is no longer allowed to do whatever He wills. 
We want a God that is fair. We want a God that is a gentleman. We want a God that respects us as much as we respect Him. But the sovereignty of God means God is above all. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, God sits in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. That's right. God's sovereignty means that He is able to extend His authority and His Godhood, what it means to be God, over all things without exception. This means God is sovereign in heaven, God is sovereign on earth, and God is sovereign in the realm of salvation. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 34, there you have the account of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when he came to himself, when he came to his mind, when he starts thinking rightly about the God who had humbled him, he extols God and he recognizes who he is. It says in Daniel 4.34, he says, he, raised my, he said, I raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as counted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And watch this, no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? This is Isaiah's Romans 9 moment. Who are you, O man, to reply back to God? See, what the throne is showing us is that God is totally sovereign. A.W. Pink says, if God is not sovereign over all, He is not sovereign at all. Because the word sovereign means to have total authority, total control, total jurisdiction over all things. No exceptions. I like what Spurgeon said. He says, God is as, sov as, as sovereign over the sun as he is over the dust particle that dances in the beams of the sun. God is absolutely meticulously sovereign. That's a great comfort to you and I, is it not? It means our lives are under the banner of the sovereignty of God. In Revelation chapter 4, he is worthy because he is sovereign. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, listen to that, you could just say because of your decree, they, were, they exist and they were created. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.15, There is only one sovereign. He is the blessed the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that means our lives are lived under the banner of the sovereignty of God. It should not be a cliche for us. Oh, God is sovereign. It should not be that for us. It should not. When we say that God is sovereign, what we're saying is that He is sovereign over the affairs of man. He is sovereign over sin and evil. He is sovereign over the realm of salvation. As Isaiah says, God forms the light and He creates the darkness. He is sovereign over calamity. He is sovereign over your life and over your death. God is sovereign over your healing and your wounding. God is sovereign over all things. God told Moses, Moses, who has made the deaf? Who has made the blind? Who has made the dumb? 
Have not I, the Lord God, done all these things? See, over the overarching sovereignty of God, nothing escapes the, the, the control of God so that what the Bible is teaching is not a platonic dualism that God is sovereign on one side and then free will and chance and fate is sovereign on the other side and that these two are running down the tracks of eternity with equal tension. Absolutely not. That is not what the Bible teaches. There is only one overarching reality that controls all reality, and that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. So, as he sees God high and exalted, he recognizes that he is in the presence of a sovereign God, and so are we. But what else does he say? Look at verse, uh, verse 2 and 3 of Isaiah because it also means, or it also reveals to us, that God is not only sovereign, but God is also holy. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God is holy and glorious. I want to focus in on His holiness. The angels are seen around the throne of God, unable to bear the splendor of what they are beholding. And we are talking about angels. We are not talking about sinners. Now, we can understand sinners cannot behold a holy God. We can understand what the Bible says. No flesh can see me and live. But we're talking about glorified, angelic beings that reside around the throne of God for all eternity from henceforth. But why is it that they can't bear to be in His presence? After all, look what they do. They cover their face because of their inability to take it all in. They cannot, they cannot, uh, they can't stand the glory and the holiness of God. He is so holy and so glorious. They cover their feet because of their shame. But what shame do they have if they're glorified? Even though they are in heaven and even though they are angels in the presence of God, worshiping God, they still perceive a lack within themselves. What is that lack? What is that lack? Stephen Charnock says, they worship God with the intensest degree according to their nature, but not with the intensest degree according to what God deserves. God is so glorious and so holy, He deserves more worship than the angels are able to give. And the angels are struck with their inadequacy so that for all eternity, they convulse. Holy, holy, holy. They're enthralled. Now, what should this do for us here? Let me make a theological connection to the New Testament. If you would, turn with me to John chapter 12. Because it ought to ex this vision of Isaiah ought to exalt your view of Jesus Christ. We have so domesticated Jesus, right? 
Jesus is our homie. Jesus is our best friend. Jesus is our pal. Jesus is the guy that we like on Facebook and we click like. Isn't that what you do? You click like. Okay, I don't know. I'm not a Facebook person, but I'm trying to be relevant here, okay? No, not in that way. I'm trying to use an analogy to show you how low we have brought him. But Jesus doesn't allow us to bring him down low, that low. In John chapter 12, we are told in verse 41 that the inspired author, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, deduced from the ministry, the life of Jesus, that what was happening was fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 6, because he says in verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And you might think, whose glory? The Father? Of course. No, no, no. Look at this all-important critical phrase. He spoke of him. That phrase is repeated over and over and over again of when New Testament authors perceive that Old Testament authors were referring to Jesus Christ. This is remarkable. This means the whole Bible is a Christian book because it means Isaiah was beholding a vision that included Jesus Christ, that included the glory of the Son as much as the glory of the Father. Why do they say holy, holy, holy? Because God is thrice holy, because God is a trinity. And you see what's going on here? Each person is assigned the attribute of holy. And yet, each person is given the same attribute because they have the same essence. So you have the persons distinguished and united by the attribute of holiness. Isaiah spoke of him. Glorious. Glorious. The whole volume of the book is written of him. We know that. But this bleeds right into my third point of... Who is on the throne? All sovereign, all holy, and all powerful God. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. In other words, God was so powerful. And notice the presence of smoke. This is relaying back to the Exodus glory cloud. Where, that, that, that was used to both manifest and conceal the glory of God. The glory of God. Again, God conceals His glory to some degree in His glory cloud because Isaiah is not able to, he's not able to bear it yet. But we will. It's called the beatific vision. When we will cross the horizon of eternity, and then we will see it in all of his unmitigated glory and beauty, and it will be too much to behold. But God will strengthen us so that we will be able to behold it. Notice the power of God's presence, the power of the presence of God, the power of the voice of God, the power of the angelic praise. It literally caused the doors to come unhinged off the place. The temple of God. 
What a description of God's uncontainable power. Second Chronicles 2, verse 6 says, The heaven of heavens can't contain him. Nothing can contain God. You can't put God in a little box of your making. He'll break out. If the heavens, if the galaxy, and of all the billions of galaxies that we know of that are out there, that he says he holds in the span of his hand, that he has every star, no matter how many trillions of them are, he has every star named. He has every star named. This is staggering. Isaiah asks in Isaiah 66.1, where is the house that you will build for him? Where is that house? There is no house that we can build for God that will contain him. As we think about God's character, who he is, and who it is that sits on the throne, sits in heaven, we should be staggered and we should be secured. We should stand in awe of God's sovereignty. We should stand in awe of his meticulous supervision of all things of the universe in its totality. And we should also be comforted. We should be comforted that none of our trials, none of our sufferings, none of our failures is wasted. This means that our lives are not nothing. This means our lives are not out of control. It, does, it means that our lives are not meaningless. It means that everything has meaning under the sovereignty of God. So this goes into my second question. Not just who is on the throne, but what does the throne imply for us? And I want to point out two things. It stresses both our lack and the supply of our need. Number one, our lack. Look back to Isaiah 6. Look at verse 5 because this is where Isaiah becomes self-aware. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So the very first thing that we see is that Isaiah comes to the self-awareness that he lacks the moral righteousness that God requires. He doesn't have it within himself to commend himself to God. He realizes that he is ruined. He speaks this word of woe upon himself. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, woe, it means a divine curse should come down upon you. Isaiah says, in essence, I deserve to perish because I have seen the Lord. Isn't that amazing? We'll get to that. But this is not a merely emotional reaction on the part of Isaiah. This is not just an emotional reflex there is actually a theological case that we could say Isaiah is building here. Three things. Watch this. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And we could, we could say, because I live among people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see the rationale? He was thinking in his mind, this is why I'm in such deep trouble. <laughs> 
This is why I'm ruined. And it's just because, number one, the introspective aspect of this is he saw his guilt. He saw, I have nothing to commend myself in the presence of a God that is that holy, that sovereign, that powerful. I'm ruined. This was Isaiah's Romans 7 moment. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Only a person that has come into contact with the throne of God through conversion should and ought to and at some point declares, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Because it's in the acknowledgement of your sin and your misery. But what does society do today? Pompous. Arrogance. They will contend with God. They will speak to God. They've got words for God. They're going to tell God. They're going to raise their fist at God like Stalin did on his deathbed on his dying day, his dying breath. He raised himself off of that bed in the hospital and lifted up his fist to God, and he died. And I tell you, the Bible says God laughs from heaven, and he mocks the nations. Why do they rage? Why do they devise a futile thing? The insanity of their futility. To think that you are going to enter into a contest with God. That you're going to somehow have a sit down with God. That you're going to sit him down. What's Oprah going to do? Pull out a couch? Interview God on the day of judgment? And let me tell you something. I just did a review on Red Grace on something Oprah did. She is in big trouble on the day of judgment. Big trouble. Because she wants to make God in her own image and create a God that suits her likeness and say that God is just one option on the plethora of options out there. She's just one thing on the smorgasbord of religion. He's just one option on the menu, the buffet of religion and spirituality. Jesus is just one option that you can pick for your life. That's fine and dandy, but don't you dare say that there's only one way. I've heard Oprah say that. The second thing is, not only does Isaiah realize he's a man of unclean lips, which means, what do you think when you think lips? What do you think when you think lips? What did Jesus say? It is not what goes into a man that defiles him. It is what comes out of him. For out of the what? Out of the mouth. Or we could say the lips precedes murders, adulteries, fornications, lying, thieves, and on and on and on. When Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, what he really means is I'm a man that is unclean, not just in my lips, but in my thoughts and in my heart. In other words, the lips are sure proof of the corruption that resides in my heart. And God knows the things that I have uttered. And, but it gets worse. There's a cumulative effect here. Second, he was also aware of the corrupting effects of society. I live among a people. Talk about compounding interests. Well, this would be almost like compounding debt, right? I live among un, a, a, a people of unclean lips. 
I, I live with people that, as Calvin says, that everyone is an idolater. Everybody's got an idol factory in their heart walking around Judea, Samaria, walking around the northern and southern kingdom. Everybody around me is unclean as far as I'm concerned now that I've seen the Lord. That's the third thing. He saw the Lord, for my eyes have seen the King. In other words, he has come into contact with God. And it wasn't until he came into contact with God that he understood his absolute, total, comprehensive, cumulative demise. Ruin. I like the King James. Undone. He is undone. That's right. You unravel in the presence of God. But it also means that finally Isaiah came to reality. This is how things really are. That's why I started my sermon that there's a reality behind the reality. Oh, friends, there's, there's much more than what you see around you here today, than what you see on the news, on television, in your neighborhood. There is a reality behind the reality. And you know what? Isaiah saw it for what it is. He saw it for what it is. He saw that we're living our lives before the throne of God, a God that is sovereign, holy, omnipotent, just, and perfectly righteous. And Isaiah, his gut reaction is, we're in trouble with this God. We're in trouble. Ray Ortland, in his commentary in Isaiah, said, that whatever his prior pious experience was, he says, for the first time, Isaiah really worshiped God. Isn't that amazing? Oh, we talk about the presence of God in our worship, don't we? We love your presence. How do the songs go? We bask in his presence. We dance in his presence. Oh, we are enamored with the presence of God. We rejoice in your presence, oh God. You know what Isaiah's lyrics are? I'm ruined! <laughs> Probably not going to make it to the top ten Christian, you know, radio or whatever. But it was authentic worship. It was authentic because it reflected how things really are. Now, the second thing is this. That the New Testament seems to put us into contact with the person of Jesus Christ at this critical moment again. If you look with me in Luke chapter 5, or I can just read it to you there, Luke chapter 5, um, there is a moment that the gospel writers record, and it's interesting because uh, in that day, paper is not cheap and space is limited on what you write and what you record. And if you remember the way that John put it, Jesus did so many things that all the books in the world couldn't contain what he did and all of the different occurrences and experiences and all the different things that happened, we would never stop writing. But Luke records this, that after a great miracle with the fish, Peter is brought up sharp and he understands who it is that he's dealing with. So much so that like Isaiah, he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, at the manifestation of the glory of Jesus, Peter responds just like Isaiah and condemns himself and says, I am in lack. 
I don't know what to do in your presence. I love the example that R.C. Sproul did once during a Ligonier conference. He brought up Steve Lawson, and then he brought up his grandson. And his grandson represented uh, Jesus, and Steve Lawson represented Hitler. And R.C. Sproul said, as he walks over to uh, uh, Lawson, who represented Hitler, he put his arm around him, and he says, I understand this. I feel at home here. I can relate to this. He walks over to his grandson, puts his arm around his grandson who represents Jesus and says, I don't understand this. I can't relate with him. I am a stranger here. I'm alienated. This doesn't feel natural to me because Jesus is so unlike us. And that's what Peter was saying. We are so, I'm so unlike you. I'm so sinful, you are so holy, depart from me. Go away from me, Lord. Amazing. And I would say that in one sense, that's the best place that, uh, that's the best place that Peter could have gone is to the feet of Jesus because he says that he fell at his feet. But I would say we need to do the same thing. Fall at the feet of Jesus. Fall at the mercy of Jesus until, as Luke 5 verse 10 tells us, Jesus replies to us, do not fear. Could there be anything more comforting for Isaiah to hear at this moment? Don't be afraid, Isaiah. Wow. After all that he just saw. So the the second thing is that it doesn't just show his lack of the moral righteousness that God requires, but it also shows his need of the grace and the power of God's forgiveness. And that's what he says. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So this we come full circle now. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the greatest installment of grace, the final layer of the grace of God is going to be the grace that God gives you on the final day when he ushers you into his presence and gives you one more installment of grace so that you're able to fellowship with him. Isn't that remarkable? You thought grace was over. No, you got more grace coming. The grace of being able to stand before the presence of God. This is why we sing, redeemed, restored, forgiven. Because that's exactly what Isaiah wanted. Thankfully, the story does not end with Isaiah's despair, but with his deliverance, amen? Because we have been cleansed, Because God has taken his holy things and applied it to our sinful lips from his altar. And what does the altar represent but the atoning work of Christ? Where the atonement is made. It is almost as if he is foreshadowing the atoning work of Jesus Christ applied to your and our account and my account. So that we can be forgiven. As it says here, so that we can be so that our iniquity can be taken away, our lips can be cleansed. And what's the result? This is my final point. You got nowhere to go. It's cold and it's raining outside. 
So hold on for one more point. Plus, I'm going on vacation, and I'm not going to see you for a while. So you're trapped. (laughs) I had to throw this in there. How do we respond? How does the throne of God fuel our worship? Look at uh, verse 8. This is why I had Chris read all the way to verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. (laughs) So three things. Number one, living before the throne of grace produces total surrender. Total surrender. What Isaiah is telling God in essence is God do whatever you will with my life. Haven't you heard that resolve roll off the tongue of many a saints throughout church history? And maybe yourself, you can identify. I think of Luther. Help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk. Save me, God. I will do whatever you ask me to do. I remember one of the greatest testimonies I heard is by a good friend of mine, uh, who's a missionary, David Johnson, in um, China. He sends me uh, periodically uh, newsletters and videos ministering in underground churches, ministering to persecuted saints. He sends me videos of them baptizing people in tubs and in the weirdest places so that the government won't catch them. David Johnson has such a glorious um, uh, testimony. He was a wealthy businessman, He was an atheist. He had it all together. It seemed like he was a well-to-do person. Very, like I said, very ambitious, very wealthy. Um, But he said when he came to faith in Christ, it was later on in his life. He was well into his 40s when he came to faith. And he told me that when he got saved, almost through tears, telling me his testimony, he said, I told God, God, do whatever you want with this miserable life that I have left. I've squandered so many years of my life. Do whatever you want with my life. And whatever I've got left, I give it to you. It's yours. Do whatever you want with it. And God said, okay. (laughs) You're going to China. (laughs) I love it. Sorry, it's more exciting than the Super Bowl for me. It was very risky what Isaiah was saying here. Here I am. Okay, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah didn't as much say, here I am. But the reason I want you to look at another prophet right now is I want you to see the cost and what it cost Isaiah. Oh, the cost of discipleship, the path of discipleship. This is the Old Testament's way of saying, pick up your cross Deny yourself and follow me. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 18. God sort of, sort of delineates here what it is that Isaiah or Jeremiah is going to go through as a prophet of God who has been foreknown by God and now is being appointed by God to be an apostle or to be a prophet to the nations. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city. Do you believe that? David Johnson, do you trust that God has made you a fortified city? 
He says, and as pillars of iron. I bet he doesn't feel like a pillar of iron all the time. As like a wall of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah. Watch this. The whole land, the kings of Judah. Who, who are kings? Who are the kings? Are they powerful type people? Oh, yeah. Kings are the kind of people that can put you to death at one request. Right? Kings are the kind of people that can throw you into prison, throw you into a dungeon, throw you into an under cha- a chamber somewhere and hold you there for the rest of your life. That's who kings are. And God is saying he's going to set him against them, against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes. Oh, those vain princes, right? To its priests. What? The religious people? That's right, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You will have to contend with those that claim to be religious. You will have to contend with those that claim to be priests in my, in my service, prophets, who are speaking my word, and I'm sending you to speak a word that is so politically incorrect, so culturally unacceptable, and so theologically intolerable that no one will like you. Are you ready for that? Friends, that's where we are in the 21st century if you stick to the Bible. Now, you want to have rock climbing walls in your church, you want to have an arcade in your church, you want your church to do, you know, 40 sermons on, you know, the Song of Solomon, how to have more intimate marriage and how to have better finances. Not so much. Anyone will want to listen to that. But you want to speak about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. You want to talk about the doctrine of regeneration. You want to say that we serve a sovereign God who chooses whomever He wills. And you will not be a popular person. So total surrender. Next, Total submission. Total submission. Coming to a point of surrender and accepting the cost of discipleship, Isaiah is now ready to submit to the will of God. He sends, here I am, send me. In other words, he's saying, I am ready to obey. I am ready to obey. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. You and I are in the same boat if we have been regenerated. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, in the New Covenant, New Testament Christians, so you can't weasel out of it by saying, well, that was the Old Testament. But in verse 17, he says, I thank God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. He says, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. If you have a Bible and it says servant or bondservant, it is a watered-down translation because doulos means first first before anything else, slave. Slave. Oh, we don't complain when it says slave to sin, right? Everybody gets that slavery. But it also says you became slaves of righteousness. And the paradoxical you know, meaning behind that is that's good for you. <laughs> it's good, therefore, to be a slave. That's why Paul opens the letter of Romans and says, a slave of Jesus Christ. There's nothing better than being a slave of Jesus Christ. And so what was the net result 
of how did the throne, living before the throne, how did this inform Isaiah's worship? Total surrender, total submission, and last of all, total service. Turn to Romans chapter 12 since you're already there. Romans chapter 12 because it captures the total Christian life. Total service, total worship. See, worship is not as much about singing as it is about living. Therefore, Romans 12.1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, the mercies that are found at the throne of grace, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is, watch this, your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. It's not just what you do, it's what you don't do as well. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, that which is acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every, everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to, or he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Why did I go to verse 3? Because it means, it's easy for you to say, Pastor, you're pastor, you're in the ministry, this is clear. But you know what? Uh Uh-uh, you ain't getting off the hook. (laughs) Everyone has a measure of faith given to them. Everybody, in other words, is gifted by God in various ways. Everybody can be used by God Some of the most radically sold-out people for Jesus Christ that I've ever met are not in any kind of formal ministries, are not pastors, don't hold a position or an office in a church or in any ministry, but yet they are sold out to God and they are serving God and they are being radically renewed and transformed by the gospel so that they are living gospel-centered lives. My beloved, what kind of lives are they living lives before the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, if only we could, I don't know if we could handle it, but if only we could get a glimpse of the reality behind the reality to see your throne in this way. But Lord, the truth is, is we don't need to see a vision of your throne right now. Because your word has declared these things so clearly to us that we cannot deny them. And so, God, we pray right now, use us. Father, we step out on the water. We risk with Isaiah and we say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Whatever that means, however that operates at work, in the home with the children, in the family, in the church, in the ministry of one another. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Make us surrender. Make us submissive. And make us serve you. Make us serve you, Lord, with with an indomitable zeal 
Because we know that our lives, not only are our lives being lived before the throne of God, our lives are headed to the throne of God. So help us to live for that glorious day. Thank you. Oh, Jesus, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.